0: We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. We are in the midst of a sermon series entitled The Coming and Conquering King. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to use the Pew Bible and you can find Revelation chapter 14 on page 890 or 1036, depending upon which version of the Pew Bible you are looking at. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I did something and uh, I'm not exactly sure why I did it, but I did. I was on Amazon and I watched an old Western entitled The Good, the Bad and the Ugly and in it. Clint Eastwood plays kind of the lead character, and he has this, this partner in crime, and at one particular poignant part of the movie, he says to this partner in crime, he says, There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who have loaded guns, and there are those who dig. And he says to his partner in crime, you dig. And it got me thinking about... All the kinds of phrases that I've heard over the course of my life about being two kinds of people. Abigail Van Buren says there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk into a room and say, there you are. And those who walk in and say, here I am. (laughs) There are three kinds of people in the world. Those who know math and those who don't. There are two types of people. Those who make your life easier and those who make it harder. There are two types of people in the world. Those who are concerned about doing the work and those concerned with getting the credit. And my personal favorite, there are those you want to drink with and those who make you want to drink. (laughs) And there are all kinds of two types of people in the world. And as many of you know, yesterday was the start of college football. There were a handful of games played around the country and around the world. Actually, uh, Stanford and Rice played, I believe, in Australia last night. And what happens at these games is that oftentimes the crowds will be divided. Now, over the course of the next several weeks and months, games just like this will be played on Thursday and Saturdays at various stadiums across the country. But on October the 14th, if you travel to Texas, there will be one particular game. It's called the Red River Showdown. And if you've ever been to this game, some of us have been to this game. If you've ever seen this game on television or you go home and you Google a picture, what you will see is a stadium that is divided in half. This half over here is wearing all red, and they support the Oklahoma Sooners. And this half over here, they wear burnt orange, and they support the Texas Longhorns. But it literally is two types of people at that game. Everyone there has been divided into two groups. Now, our passage this morning, Revelation 14, gives us two visions of two groups. But these visions take place in the future. The first is a vision of God's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's a vision of victory. It's a vision of triumph. It's a vision of God's great salvation that has been accomplished for his covenant people. The second vision is a vision of judgments. So if you would, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 12 looked to the past. We saw the woman who gives birth to the Christ child. We see the dragon that wants to destroy the, the child. Revelation 13 showed us the present age in which we live in, in which Satan forms this unholy counterfeit trinity. He calls forth a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. And this godless trinity attacks not the child because we've seen the success of his ministry, but he attacks the woman who is the church. We said that she represents the the community of faith from which the Messiah comes, the Old Testament nation of Israel, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, then the church whom the Messiah rules and reigns over. And so the beasts and the dragon persecute God's people. They deceive and invite us to believe a false gospel. Revelation 14 now is looking to the future where John tells us what happens to the woman who represents the church and her offspring, God's people. He also shows us the future of the dragon and those who follow him. So let's look at what John says in verse one. John says, then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him one hundred and forty four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, these are not new characters in the story of Revelation, the lamb we've already been introduced to in Revelation five. John hears this discussion in the throne room of heaven. And he hears one talking about the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so he turns and he looks and expects to see a lion, fierce and ferocious. But he says, I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Both things are simultaneously true about Jesus. He hears of the lion, he sees a lamb. And this lamb is the one who is worthy to take the scroll to break its seals, and to put God's plan of salvation into motion. We also see this crowd of 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. The 144,000 are not new to us either. We've already seen them in Revelation chapter 7 in which John has this vision. And he hears the crowd of 144,000. And there's read off a 1,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And we said that these are the people of God who have been marked and set apart. And now John reveals to us that mark, that seal, is the name of God and the name of the Father. And this seal is a sign that they belong to God and that he will protect them from his wrath. This group stands in contrast to the group that we saw last week in Revelation 13. That group becomes a follower of the dragon and the beast, the counterfeit, unholy trinity. But they too are marked. They're marked with the name or the number of the beast, 666. And what we see is once again this counterfeit trinity imitating, copying what God does. God brings salvation to his people. He marks them so that they're protected and preserved. The beast does the same. But the problem is that the mark of the beast does not guarantee safety and security. It guarantees destruction. So the people of God are marked... Is signifying that they belong to God. The people of the beast are marked that they belong to the beast. So in back-to-back visions, John sees all humanity divided into two camps. And they bear two different brands or marks. Either they bear the name of the lamb or they bear the name of the beast, the dragon. So you're either in the group of 144,000 or you're in the group that's going to experience the judgment of God. The wrath of God that is poured out. If you remember back to Revelation 7, John hears and sees. We've mentioned this briefly. John hears and sees. But what he hears and what he sees are always the same thing. It's just a Different vision that you lay over the top of the other in order to comprehend the fullness of the picture. John, here's someone numbering off 12,000 people. One from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we said those 12,000, and you multiply that by the 12 disciples of the New Testament, you get this number of 144,000, which is just a symbolic way of saying the people of God from beginning to end who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus they represent the people of God throughout all times and all places. It's a crowd that John sees is beyond number. They cannot be counted. A great multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So every time you read 144,000, it's the redeemed people of God. Every single one of them makes it home safe and secure. The reason they make it home is because they overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The reason why the hundred and forty four thousand are now here is because they've been saved by Jesus, who is our champion. Notice what John says. He says, behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. The lamb is standing at one time. He was the lamb who had been slain, but now he's the lamb who stands on Mount Zion. It's interesting that he pictures him as standing. Remember, the dragon has done everything he can to destroy the child and to destroy the woman, which represents the church and the offspring, which are the people of God. He's done everything to destroy the lamb. And he thinks he's victorious when Christ is on the cross, but really he's securing his own defeat. Now we see the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And the idea here is that despite all the opposition, despite all of the activity of the enemy, Jesus has won. Jesus has conquered. And is a champion. Now, how many of you are familiar with that famous picture of Muhammad Ali standing in triumph over Sonny? Listen, it's a very famous picture in which uh, Muhammad Ali, who was then, I guess, the heavyweight champion of the world, has not listened to the mat. And he's standing over the top of him, taunting him with his arm drawn up in strength. That's what the lamb is doing. He has defeated his enemy and he stands in victory. What was true of Muhammad Ali is true of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't stand alone. It says the 144,000 are standing with him. Now, conventional wisdom says this, be the hero of your own story. Conventional wisdom says that you define your destiny. If your life stinks, it's because you were lied to and you believe that lie and you just did what was expected of you. You bought into a nine-to-five job, but you were meant for greatness. You were meant to be remarkable. actually he went and found an article in which the author was saying this. He was somewhat of a motivational speaker, and he says, No one dreams of being R2-D2 and C-3PO. Everybody wants to be Luke Skywalker and Han Solo or Princess Leia. No one wants to be Mary or Pippin in the story of the Lord of the Rings, but we want the songs of Triumph to be about me and about you. But the hero of the Bible is Jesus. You are not the champion and the hero of your own story. You're the villain. And I'm the villain. You see, the book of Revelation isn't about individual Christians triumphing, but it's the revelation singular of Jesus Christ. He is the one who conquers our enemy. The Bible is always about Jesus. Now, next Saturday... You might turn on the television, depending on who or what your team is. And what you'll see is coming out of a commercial break is the camera focused in on the fans. And it doesn't matter how bad your team is. Like, I've watched bad football over the years. I'm a Mississippi State Bulldog fan, and I've watched really bad college football. But when the television commercial ends and they put that camera in the face of the fans, what do they always say, we're number one, we're number one. Okay, here's the interesting thing. One, Mississippi State's only been number one for a few weeks, several, several seasons ago, two or three seasons ago. But the people are always saying, we're number one, we're number one. They're not even on the field. They're not even suited up and in the game. But when the camera comes on them and when they're shouting at the end of the match, they're saying, we're number one, we're number one. Here's the thing. They didn't do anything. They didn't accomplish any victory. But they get to experience in the triumph when their team is victorious. In the same way, Jesus is the ultimate champion. When we cast our lot with him, when we put our bets on him, when we put a stake in the ground and say, my future, my salvation, my hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. When he defeats the enemy, he wins on behalf of his people. So the next time you find yourself battling with the enemy, facing despair and the guilt and the shame that comes with sin, Remember that you may be experiencing pressure from all sides. The one who accuses the brethren may be whispering in your ear, you're not worthy. Look at your life, the mistakes that you've made, the path that you're on. Remind him that Jesus is a champion. And the blood of the lamb enables his people to overcome. That Christ on the cross at Calvary has defeated the dragon and the beast. We now share... In his triumph, we get to participate in the spoils of his victory. We can say we're number one because he is truly number one and his victory belongs to all of us. Jesus has triumphed on our behalf. The dragon and the beast attempt to destroy, but Jesus ensures and guarantees that his people, every single one of them, make it home safe and secure. So let's notice a few things about this group, the hundred and forty four thousand, the hundred and forty four thousand are redeemed. Notice what John says. He says no one could learn the song that they sing except the hundred and forty four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. This group has been redeemed as from mankind as fruits for God and the lamb. These one hundred and forty four thousand, the people of God from all times and all nations, they serve as trophies of God's grace. They serve as visible testimonies of what God has done through Jesus. But the 144,000 are also disciples. Notice what it says. He says, these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now that word disciple comes from an old English word, which just simply means pupil or student or follower. We've kind of lost the idea of disciple in contemporary society, but kind of a modern day equivalent would be the idea of an apprentice. If you want to be an apprentice electrician, you start out and you you go to a master electrician and you kind of hire yourself out and you say, I want to be your apprentice. And and so you follow him around and you watch what he does. And over time, he begins to impart his knowledge and his wisdom to you. He teaches you the skills that he has acquired over the course of his lifetime. And and if you're a good apprentice and he's a good teacher, then over two or three or five or ten years, what happens is you begin to think like your teacher. You begin to act like your teacher. You begin to do the things that your master teacher does. Have any of you have ever seen the movie The Karate Kid? That's a great example of what it means to be a teacher and an apprentice. Now, there are sometimes when you question what the teacher is doing. But in the end, you trust yourself to the teacher that he's going to accomplish his purposes. So this 144,000 are Disciples. This hundred and forty four thousand are worshipers. Notice what John says. He said, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harp. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the one hundred and forty four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. They're singing. They're singing in victory. They're singing in triumph. How many of you would describe your singing during corporate worship as that way? How many of you would use the words that John says, that our singing is like a strong and mighty peal of thunder, like the roar of many waters? I would say most of us are overly self-conscious about how we sing. So as a result, we don't sing out with joy and triumph. We're concerned with what we look like and how we sound. I'll give you an example. Um, Last week, uh, we were at the park and I was playing the drum. Lori's around kind of shooting some video for a promo that's going to be produced for our church. And uh, after the service, we're at the house and we're talking and and she was like, you know, you, you close your eyes. And she and Hattie started to laugh and started to giggle. And, and between the two of them, they had decided that I look like the Stevie Wonder of the drums. You know? <laughs> now, when someone shares that, you know, it makes you a little bit self-conscious. You know? Part of the reason why is, is as I'm learning how to play the drum and, and I'm focusing intently. But here's the thing. If I'm focused on Jesus, I really don't care what you think. I don't think this 144,000, this crowd of worshipers, really cared what the person on the right or what the left cared, well, thought about them. All they knew was Jesus had triumphed, they experienced victory, and they had to sing, and they had to celebrate. See, we're worried that we might sing too loud or off-key, but that's the beauty of corporate worship. It's the messiness of congregational singing. It's the reminder that God is so beautiful that he uses broken people like us to glorify his name. We want to strive. We want to do Music and singing as good as we possibly can. But the child, as a parent, the sound of a child singing, doesn't matter if they're singing the right words, it doesn't matter if they're singing the right key, it's a sweet and wonderful sound. And I believe that that's true when God's people gather together. The fact that we're singing about God's salvation and how He has worked to deliver us, it's a beautiful sound, whether it's on key, it's loud, off key. That's one of the reasons why here at our church we don't have amplified music. Last year we had a discussion with the music team and some others, and we talked about what is it that we want the sound of cross points worship to be. One of the things that was clear was we want a strong voice. Preaching and teaching God's Word. Now that doesn't mean that we're looking for somebody with like, um, you know, James Earl Jones and the Word of God. Not like that, but but we want, when someone comes to worship here, we want you to interact with the Word of God. We want you to hear it read, we want you to hear it preached, we want you to hear it taught. We're committed to the Word of God, the eternal gospel that's mentioned in this, this chapter, Revelation 14, being declared. That God saves sinners by His grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. But we also said we want the sound of cross-point worship to be the singing of God's people. We didn't want it to be amplified instruments, but we want our voices to be the primary instrument used to glorify God in corporate worship. Historically, the reason why churches have chosen an organ as their music for their music is because it's supposedly the instrument that best represents the human voice. When instruments begin to overpower the voice of the congregation, the line between the work of God's people and the work of a special few gets blurred. That's why we moved away from an amplified sound system. Because we want it to be clear that God is glorified when the voices of his people are gathered together in unison and lift up songs of praise. Now, we need skilled musicians. We need people to train and model for us. Why? Because we've lost the idea of singing in our society. Outside of Sunday mornings, there are very few places where you'll see people gathered together in America to sing. The one place where you're likely to see it is at a baseball game. Now, sometimes at a sporting event, you'll see people singing the national anthem. But because the national anthem has a real wide vocal range, what happens is that the crowd doesn't sing, but a soloist or a band is trotted out onto the field, and everybody simply watches them perform. I would say in my lifetime, the three best national anthems, my personal opinion, you can have a different opinion, but you'd be wrong, um, Whitney Houston. And then last year in the playoffs, the two guys who sang before the Dodgers and the Cubs playoff series did the best job of national anthems. And one guy sang, and you thought, oh, man, that can't be topped. And then they would go to L.A., and that guy just blew it out of the park. you go, oh, that can't be topped. They went back to Chicago, and then this guy did a phenomenal job. But what happened was thousands of people in the stadiums, millions of people at home watching on TV did exactly that. They watched. They did not participate. That's not what we're going for in corporate worship. What we're looking more for is the soccer chants at an RSL game in which the entire crowd in unison begins to sing and to chant. Actually, RSL is given like, I think, the number one uh, fight song or whatever you call it in soccer uh, in the whole MLS. If you haven't heard it, go on YouTube. You can listen to it. Or maybe something that you might be more familiar with is the seventh inning stretch. If you're at a baseball game, and several of us were at a baseball game just a few weeks ago, every single one of us stood up and sang. And I don't know if it's because you know people are just feel a little bit more relaxed at a baseball game, but in a baseball game when that music starts, one, everybody knows the tune, everybody knows the word, and everybody sings along. We want everyone to participate. We want everyone singing confidently. And as a result, we've made some intentional decisions about the songs that we choose to sing. Over the last year or so, we scaled back the number of songs that we sing. So sometimes you might do the same song repeated numerous times. The reason why we do that is because we want to develop a familiar library. But we have a criteria that we look at. One, songs have to be focused on God and his glory. Is God at the center of this song? We sang that in the prelude. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. You know, I could sing of your love forever. It's a catchy tune and it's easy to follow. But but that's probably not a really helpful song for corporate worship. Secondly, is it theologically true? Is it teaching the people of God something that they can take with them so that in the middle of the week, when the enemy is attacking, those words come to your mind and you're reminded of the truth that before the throne of God, you have an advocate that pleads on your behalf, that you have been redeemed, purchased By the blood. Three, we want it to be singable. We want the music to be singable. So what John shows for us here is a model for what our worship should look like individually and corporately. It's a victory celebration. The dragon, the beast have tried their best, but they've been defeated. Jesus is the champion and the church has overcome. We hear the same thing at the Red Sea. The Egyptians threatened the destruction of God's people, the nation of Israel. But God does this amazing thing. He parts the water, the nation of Israel crosses. And then when the Egyptians follow him, the waters consume them. And what do we see? We see Moses and Miriam leading the people of God in a song of victory. Exodus 15. We hear the same thing with David. The Lord delivered David from all the hands of his enemies, from the hand of Saul. And how does he respond? He sings a song in 2 Samuel chapter 22, Psalm 18. Throughout the Bible... When God's people experience salvation and deliverance, they always sing a new song. Each time God acts in history to deliver, they sing a new song. New victories, new songs. New triumphs, new songs. New conquests, new songs. That's why it says here, they sing a new song to the Lamb. But it's a song only the redeemed can sing. God is worthy to be glorified and praised. God's beauty and majesty is to be shouted from the rooftops, but only the redeemed can praise God for salvation. So the whole point of Revelation chapter 14, we just kind of scratched the surface, is that John is asking you and me. Which crowd do we belong to? Do we belong to the 144,000 who sing a new song to the Lamb? Or do we belong to the crowd that will drink the cup of the wrath of God? So this morning, we're going to make every effort. We're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to try as best as we can to believe the gospel. And then we're going to celebrate with singing. So I invite you to forget about the person sitting on your left, your right, and just to sing to Jesus this morning. Let's pray.